Last week, um, if you were here, uh, you, I called last week's message uh, a hot message, right? Like with an emphasis on the mess because we were like in all these different kinds of scriptures as we were going through. And I, I was going through all these different spots in Luke. Luke's chapter 1 and 2, we were in four different spots there. We jumped to Matthew 1 for a while, and then we jumped back to Luke, and it seemed like we were doing a bit of gymnastics in Scripture. And and I'm going to tell you, I make no promises tonight as well. We're still going to be going through some multiple Scriptures because we have some work to be done. But sometimes it is really good to get a a whole uh, breadth of knowledge of what the Lord has in His Word, and sometimes laying a good foundation is messy. I mean, like, think about, like, actually laying a foundation, right? It it can be sort of messy because you pick a plot of land, like, if you're building a house or a restaurant or, you know, on 53rd, you see it all the time. Like, there is these plots of land that have been picked, and then they get torn up, they get excavated, they get leveled, they get enforced, and, and there's so much more that goes into it than just that. But my point is that laying a foundation can be a messy process sometimes. It's a messy process that seems really confusing until it all comes together and you understand the support that is, is underlying the whole foundation of the building that's going to be on top of it. And that's, that's how I look at last week's message. Last week's message was just us digging up the foundation to lay something solid so that now we have a bit more clarity with the scriptures that we're going to be going through tonight. And I want to remind you of just some of the things that we did last week. Um, like I said, we went through those, those four uh, scriptures in Luke. And, and what we were doing was we were putting drops in a bucket to remember them, right? So we, I said, like, we're going to take this, we're going to put it in the bucket. We got this prophecy here. We got this other prophecy. We've got this psalm that's written by Mary. We've got um, just this miraculous birth that's happening. We put them all in this bucket and then poured them out to see how they all relate. And we did that because... What we're looking at in this little two-part message is what it means to celebrate Christmas. Specifically, you know, what it means in God's redemptive work and his story. Like when I say God's redemptive work or redemptive history, I mean from the time of creation to now, all that God has done to bring people to know him, to redeem them to himself, and to make his name known in the world. That's what I mean by the redemptive history. And when we come together to celebrate Christmas, I want to understand why we celebrate that. And the first thing we covered last week, I keep on wanting to say last night, first thing we covered last week, point one, was that when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate a Savior born. It's like saying we celebrate the birth, not the birth date. Right? It doesn't matter when the day of Christmas falls. It doesn't matter if it's on the 25th or if it was in September or if it was in March. What we celebrate is the actual event that happens and, and who was born. And that's an easy one, right? I mean, many of us have heard Jesus is the reason for the season. And so that part w- was easy for us to begin laying this foundation. But then we moved into that, that spot where I was putting the drops in the bucket, right? And when I talked about those prophecies that were spoken of, the new psalm that was written, the angels that were showing up, that whole point was our second point. And that second point was that when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate a silence broken. We celebrate a a silence that is broken. That is, there was 400 years, 400 years between the Old Testament was finished with the prophet Malachi and when the events of the New Testament happened. And those 400 years 
were years of silence from God to his people. We don't have a single recorded work in the word of God to show what he did amongst his people. No prophets were uh, raised up to speak out, no kings, no judges, nothing. And we call that the intertestamental period, like the, the period literally between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we talked about was this amazing time when out of nowhere, out of 400 years of silence, out of hundreds of generations, God broke the silence. He broke the silence and there was angels declaring and singing and there was miraculous births and there was new prophecies and and all these things. And we talked about how when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God broke the the silence and began to continue his redemptive work. And actually began to fulfill some of the things that have been talked about for thousands of years. And that leads us to... Uh, the third point of what we talked about last Thursday, and, and it was our third point last Thursday, and it's our first, and it's our only point tonight. I know I've got like three or four points for you, right? Like, no, we're, this one's important enough. We're spending the rest of the night on it. This one's important enough because we need a good understanding of what exactly this third point means. In fact, what we're going to talk about tonight fills entire semesters worth of of credits for seminaries and Bible colleges. The, the understanding of, of what God has done here. And, and we can't possibly cover it in this 25-minute message. Like, I can't pretend to, to teach you everything about it. But we can begin to understand it. We can begin to understand it, and we can understand it enough that it stirs our hearts and our affections for Jesus in this Christmas season. Because if there's anything that I want for you guys, if, there, if there's anything I could give to you tonight, it would be that your affections would be served for Christ. And, and that's what I'm, I'm praying for us in last message and this message and as we head into the rest of the Christmas season. Because many of you, many of you, you, you face a battle every day. Like a battle for your mind and for your affections and for your soul, right? Many of you, when you step into a classroom on whatever campus you go to, you're, you're facing an academic battle and a battle for your faith. And you're fighting against uh, professors and activists and friends and faculty and, and everyone that you are with in that culture of college all wanting you to come alongside and believe what they believe. You're constantly in a culture where people want to bring you to either accept them or believe with them. And constantly facing that is tiring. It's exhausting. It wears you down. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you're walking into that battle, even in the workplace, right? Even in the workplace, if you're walking into that battle and all you have is a head knowledge, you're fighting a losing battle. Like if all you have is like, I, I know who Jesus is, I know what the Bible says, or at least I know what I've been taught after years of church of what the Bible says, I know what I should believe, I know what the political right conservative view is, or I know what I should say. Like if that's all you have to go on, if that's all you're working with, you're fighting a losing battle. If your affections aren't stirred up for Jesus to love him and love his word and want to do good works for him, 
as a sign of your faith, not as confirmation of your faith, not, not as validation in the, in the sense that you earn that salvation. If you want to just do things to please him because you're saved, that's what we want here. And if you aren't going into your classroom or workplace with, with a joy of Christ in your heart, that's what Calvin was just talking about in the worship set, right? Like he, we sang joy to the world, and then he talked about joy, what it meant. Christmas is the time that we celebrate joy. And if you aren't walking into the workplace or classroom with that joy in your heart and the knowledge of Christ has just rested in your head, you're going to lose that battle someday because you know what? Someone smarter than you is going to come along. Someone with a more well-thought-out plan is going to come along. Someone with a better version of an argument is going to come along. There's going to come the day when somebody is smarter than you, when someone outwits you, when someone outargues you. There's going to come the day when you don't have the answer. And all of a sudden, because your whole faith is based on what you know, your faith is going to be rattled. It's going to be shaken. It's going to rock you to the core. But you can have a true sincere joy that comes from salvation if you can have an affection and love for the lord if you can if you can feel it in your guts right if you can if you can feel it in a way that is sincere belief and desire to love him it won't matter what other people say right because what will matter is what you've seen what you know what you've experienced and what you read, all of them will come together in a way that allows you to walk with the Lord. And, and I'm bringing all this up because I'm saying is that's what I want for us tonight as we spend time in the Lord. Not that I would just spend the next 15 minutes in the Old Testament with you and I would just fill your head with knowledge. But that as we go through this and we see what the Lord did throughout all of history, that you would not only have new knowledge tonight, but that your heart would be stirred up to love him because of it. And that you would seek him more because of it. And then when we sing joy to the world, you would have joy. You would have joy. But, you know, what, what am I talking about, right? I mean, I, I told you the third point, and then I didn't even actually say it. So here's the third point. The third point uh, for tonight is that when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate a promise fulfilled. We celebrate a promise fulfilled. We celebrate the most amazing promise that has ever been given to mankind. We celebrate the most complex promise to have ever been fulfilled in history. And I, and I don't know what your relationship or experience with promises is. Like maybe it's great. Like maybe you're great at keeping promises. Uh, or, you know, maybe you've had people in your life that have kept their promises to you. Right? And so when somebody makes a promise, it, it means a lot to you. Like, you, you can hold on to that word and trust it. But maybe that's not you, right? Maybe your idea of promises means almost nothing. That it's, it's just words and you care about actions. Like, maybe you've had parents that have broken promises. Maybe you've been in relationships where promises have been broken and you've been betrayed. I don't know um, what your particular relationship or idea of promises is. And maybe you yourself are bad at keeping them, right? you're good whatever it is you need to know and come to a better understanding of what it means for God to be a promise keeper 
we need to come to a better understanding that what he says he does. No and ifs or buts about it. And, and we're not just talking about promises that he makes for us in our lifetime, right? Like a promise to provide for us, a promise to lead us out of a hard place, a promise to bring us to some kind of uh, goodness. Like we're not just talking about these promises that might happen in the next one year, two year, five year, 10 year, 15 years, right? Maybe college, right? Lord, get me through college. Like just him to fulfill that promise would be enough for you right now but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about a promise that spans literally all of history like all of existence and so i i want us to spend time tonight starting way back at the beginning in genesis go ahead and turn your bibles to genesis 3 if you have them we're going to be going through a few scriptures and we're going to go in order and what i want to show you tonight is god's story i want to show you his redemptive work, so that when we finally land our eyes in our text in Luke tonight, we will have a deeper meaning and understanding of what it means. All right, so Genesis 3, I'm, I'm sure all of you are uh, familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. God created them to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate and have dominion over the earth. He created them to be on earth and be in the image of God, glorifying him in all they do. Essentially, Adam and Eve, they had one job, right? One job. Well, one job they shouldn't be doing. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was like the one thing they couldn't do. And what did they do? They ate it. They ate it. And in Genesis 3 here, when we're looking, God is actually dealing out the consequences of that sin. Like, they were deceived by Satan. They chose to disobey God, they ate of the fruit, and as a consequence, God starts giving out these things that are now going to happen. And he says them to the man, and he says them to the woman, and he says them to the snake, who is Satan. And, and get your eyes on Genesis 3, verse 14 there. God starts by talking to the serpent. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, or because he deceived them, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire should be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then it gets into what it has for Adam, about how hard it will be for him to accomplish his task of working the ground and multiplying and being fruitful in that way as well. So like I said, as we're going through tonight, we need to come to a, a better understanding, the magnitude of the promise. And we need to understand that, that back before anything we know today, back in the days of the garden before any nation ever existed before the hebrews or, or the greeks or the romans or the persians or the babylonians like before any country even existed before any different race existed before all of that god had already spoke he'd already spoke in the presence of the, of the mother of all people eve and he said that her offspring, that's like her children, right? Her child. That her offspring would what? 
would bruise or crush, bruise the head of the serpent, and that the serpent would bruise his heel. And I just want to ask, like, are you, uh, are you following here so far, right? Like, can you see, like, we sit here on a very privileged point in history where we know about the cross, we know about Jesus, we understand, we've heard the stories of what happened to him, and it's pretty easy for us to connect like, oh, a child of Eve bruised the head of Satan and at the same time was also bruised, was also hurt. Jesus Christ conquered death and yet also died. It's easy for us to, to see that now because of the culture that we live in. But can you put yourself in their place? Can you put yourself in Adam and Eve's place as God's dealing out these consequences and curses, not knowing who Jesus was yet? Right? Not, not ever having heard that name even or had any other prophecies like in the midst of these consequences and curses and, and going through these consequences, God uses them to make a promise. Hey, someday this is going to happen. This is going to happen. What would that do to you? That'd give you something to, to think about and rely upon and look towards, right? That's actually exactly what it did for the Hebrew people. The people that eventually descended from Abraham. And that's who we're going to look at next. You can turn to Genesis 12 if you like. Otherwise, I'll read it out loud as well. Like I said, we're going through a few, but I just want to start connecting these dots. So it started with Adam and Eve and this small promise that someday there was going to be this moment. Where, where man and, and Satan, something was going to happen. That's what we have so far, right? Let's see how God continues to build that. Genesis 12. This is the first time we see Abram, who becomes Abraham. Like literally the father of the, the Jewish people. Genesis 12 here, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we see a, another promise happening. And, and we may not see how they connect right away. And we know now that they connect. But look at what the promise is now. God shows up. To Abram, and he actually does it again in Genesis 17. But he says initially the same thing. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless others because of you. And those that dishonor you, I will curse. So he's talking to the father of the Jewish people. The people that Jesus is going to descend from. The people that Jesus is going to come from. And he's saying because of you and through you. The nations will be blessed. And that those that bless you. Those that love you. That know you. They're going to be blessed. And those that don't. They're going to be cursed. Alright. So we... Got a little more going, right? All right, so we know that something's going to happen in the future. Snake, son of Eve, 
We know that God is now going to use Abram to, to bless the nation somehow. And we're starting to get an idea for what God might have going on for the rest of history, right? He's already told the Jewish people now two things for what he might have for them. And there's a lot more that I could show you. Remember I told you that I don't have enough for you. Uh, I don't have, I'm not able to teach this in like 25 minutes. I've got about 5 to 10 minutes left. So um, we're going to skip a few hundred years. And we're going to head to the time of King David. So in between Abraham and King David, a lot of things have happened, right? Jewish people came. There was 12 tribes. They're like, oh, the promised land, not the promised land. Oh, the promised land, we're back. And then they had like different, um, different people that ruled over them. So they had the judges that uh, would be raised up and they would bring the people back to the Lord and then the judge would stop and then the people would fall back and the judge would come back and he'd bring them back to the Lord. And finally they had these kings. The Lord raised up kings. There was Saul, not seen as the greatest king in the world. And then there was King David. King David was known as a man after God's own heart. King David had a, a special relationship with the Lord. If you were here with us this last summer, we spent... Like all summer, going through the Psalms and, and King David and his worship to the Lord and what it meant to be in relationship with the Lord because of him. Like, we got to see that. And so in this moment, we see arguably the most important moment in David's life. And it's when the Lord says to him this. This is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 14. 2 Samuel 7. I'll read it. It's a bit longer. I'm sure you'll get there in that time or write it down. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus he shall say to my servant David, he's talking to a prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So he's saying, I'm God, I've done all this thing for you. I've brought you to be a king and I'm going to continue to do more for you. It says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A violent man shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. So he's saying, I'm going to bring my people to a place of eternal peace. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, uh, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So all of a sudden... God adds more to this idea that he's about to do something in history someday, right? It starts with Adam and Eve. It goes to Abram. Hey, I'm going to bless all the nations. And then we get to David. And he's like, by the way, this whole blessing of all the nations and, and what's going to happen, it's going to happen in the family of David. David is going to have a son that all this is going to happen to. A few thousand years have passed since Adam and Eve first walked the earth and God is continuing to add to this promise and bring it to fruition over hundreds and hundreds of years and this last one it's in Jeremiah 31 this is 
getting close to the end. Like, you know, I talked about that time of silence. Jeremiah is not too far away from that time of silence. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to them the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And it keeps on going. He's like, I'm going to put my spirit in them. They're going to be forgiven. And now all of a sudden we start seeing what all this means. Let me connect the dots. God said someone's going to save people, right? He's going to bruise the head of Satan. God said, I'm going to bless the world through this nation. In the midst of that nation, God said, I'm going to bring somebody out of this house that's going to do all these things. And then God clarifies even later saying, and all these things I'm going to do, they deal with forgiveness. And they deal with my spirit being put into people. And they deal with the, the word being written on their hearts. These are all things that are going to happen. And all of history is moving towards this moment. And then silence. Except all the children speaking right now, right? Like <laughs> silence. And then, finally in our passage in Luke, and this is where we're going tonight, turn to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 67. So we've covered this passage last week, but I think it'll have a new understanding for us tonight. This is John the Baptist's father giving a prophecy after like, John the Baptist has been born, and angels have showed up, and they know that Mary's pregnant with Jesus. Like, the start of the Christmas story has already happened. And the prophet Zechariah, he's a priest of God, John the Baptist's father, he says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Just like he said he would in Jeremiah there, right? And he has raised up a horn of salvation. It's a symbol of salvation. For us in the house of who? His servant David. Oh. Just like he promised David. That that was going to happen. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. You mean like the prophet Jeremiah that we were just seeing. Or Ezekiel or Isaiah. Like all these prophets that spoke of the story that we covered last week. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. So there's going to be mercy given now. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he goes on and talks about his son, right? And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. We covered that a little bit last week. Why do I bring that up? Because Zechariah, in this moment, as Jesus is about to be born, 
as John the Baptist has been born, Zechariah so succinctly says, all those things have been promised for thousands of years and that God has constantly been showing and revealing. It's here. It's here right now. And so when we celebrate Christmas, right, when we celebrate Christmas, we come together and we celebrate the fact that God has fulfilled the ultimate promise. It, now, it is fully fulfilled in the cross. When we get to like that moment on Easter, like that's when we see it come to fruition. But Christmas, we celebrate that he kicked it off, that we get to see all these things begin. And so when we celebrate Christmas together, our joy comes from the fact that our God, who we are in relationship with, is so powerful and so mighty and so sovereign that he can bend the nations to his will over thousands of years to bring about the one person that he said he was going to bring and to fill every single promise that he ever made to the people of Israel and to the nations that we would all be blessed by him. Like God is a promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. And Christmas is one of the ways that we celebrate that as God's people. And so what does that mean for our lives today? Well, it means that we get to worship him because he was a promise keeper and the nations were blessed. And most of us are not Jews, which means that we are part of those nations that were blessed because of the Jews. Like, so just the fact that we get to gather here and worship, that's already one way. But the other ways are that God, big God, still works in your life too. Those promises that he makes about what it means to walk with him, he still keeps. Those promises he makes about where we're headed to have a salvation and inheritance waiting for us at the day of our salvation, like, that's a promise he's going to keep. No matter what happens in, in the course of history, right? He will guard us through faith. And so for us, it's a celebration because if God kept that awesome, ultimate, complex problem of a, of, of a promise over thousands of years, he's going to keep every promise that we see in Scripture. And so Christmas is a time we celebrate that hope as well.